All right, you heard me anyway. I like that. Let's go. All right. Uh, so I know Jerry's doing great, but I, y'all, you know that I'm a class participation guy. I'm, uh, I'm big on it. I really enjoy it. So let's just run it back one more time. And even in this instance, if you're not great, that's okay. But just give me like a, uh, or something, you know? It's like, uh, yeah, there you go. That right there. And so I'm going to run it back, and then we're, we'll get started, all right? How's everybody doing today? All right, all right. That's good. That's much better. Okay, thank you, guys. Um, hey, you don't know me. My name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here. Uh, and I'm excited. We're going to continue our time in worship today uh, by continuing on in worship by getting into the Word of God, by opening the Scriptures and, and asking God to meet us here as we, we open up these words and we say, God, meet us. Like, like, show us, reveal yourself through these words. And we believe the Holy Spirit, when we do that, does meet us, does show us who God is and starts to touch and impact our heart. And, and the way we've been doing that recently, uh, or, or actually one week past now, is by going through a new sermon series entitled A Weary World Rejoices. And that obviously is about Christmas, all right? It's specifically about the time of Advent, this time of, of expecting uh, the, the, the coming Messiah, this expectant time where we, we reflect back on when the Messiah, when the Savior came the first time, but we also look forward in expectation to his return. And so uh, this is actually a, a, one of my favorite times of year, to be honest. I really Really enjoy it. Last night we visited, uh, Jerry, what is it called? Well, yeah, sorry, 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 the event itself. The Festival of Lights at Village of Lights at Community First Village, where Jerry works, and it's an incredible place. Shout out to them. Uh, and when we, we got there, we parked, and we got onto this shuttle, and the shuttle took us to the place we were supposed to be. Oh, you know what, y'all? Hold on. Um, I'm going to start a timer that way. That way I get us out of here in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, and we, we got off the shuttle at the location. And when we got the shuttle, you were just met by this blasting Christmas music and lights everywhere. And I got off and I was just like, I love Christmas. Like, it's just like, you know, I went full Buddy the Elf in that moment, if you know what I'm saying. Like, because I do, I really love it. I love everything that it brings. It, it, it has this sense of like, like everybody calms down and starts focusing on, on values that just seem more important, right? And in the church, we, we seem to slow down and really focus in on Jesus and, and who he is and what he does. But even outside of, of Christianity, right, people start to focus on things like family and spending quality time with each other. And, and that also impacts this place because then you do have like this more chill environment in here, like on a week-to-week basis. And that does come with some things where it's like, oh, man, like, you know, you're going to miss, like, we're missing people today. And it's like, oh, I'm going to miss them. I'll see them next week. That's okay. You know, like that thing. But at the same time, it just creates this sense of togetherness and this sense of, like, values that I just really love. Uh, and sorry, that was nowhere in my notes as I was preparing. I just started rambling about how much I love Christmas, and it's true. But Weary World Rejoices, right? It, it's really thinking about uh, a simple idea, but, but one that we don't always uh, think about. Uh, and that is what we described last week as a meta-narrative, right? A meta-narrative. Uh, does anybody know, like, off the top of your head what that is? All right, there's like a few people. All right, there's like an overarching, yeah. Someone, <laughs> Meredith like did her hands and almost dropped everything in her lap. And so I'll spare you, I'll spare you the hand signs. Uh, but last week, I didn't have an exact definition. I did provide you a definition, but I wanted to give it up to you, uh, give it to you up here. A meta-narrative, right, is the idea that there is an overarching, all-embracing story of humankind into which all the more particular narratives fit, e.g., I thought that was IG, but EG, uh, salvation, history, 
uh, X, Y, and Z. And so that's what we're thinking about when we think about a weary world rejoices. The fact that in, in history, right, across human history, there is a larger story taking place. Yes, there are smaller stories going along the way. And there are particular subjects and stories and salvation and sin and, and people reigning and kings falling and nations rising and nations falling. But all of them fit together in a meta-narrative, something that's crossing the span of history, right, that covers and makes sense of all those smaller subjects. And for the Bible, the, the meta-narrative, that overarching story is one that really speaks about a Messiah, that speaks about one that's going to see a weary world, weary or weary? Weary. I'm telling you, every week I'm going to have to do this because I don't want to keep saying that we're, you know, uh, suspicious or suspicious world rejoices, right? Um, and so a weary, a weary world uh, is, is, is hurting and, 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 and separated from God in intimacy and separated from God and disconnected from God and itself and others and, and creation itself. We talked about this last week. But, but in the midst of that, God is working, and he's working to bring about redemption and to love these people. And really, the goal of that story is that God would pursue to be present with his people. He wants to be with his people. And so, so we, we see that start to take off in the story, and God is aggressively trying to, trying to figure out ways and work in and work in a way that he's going to be present and, and completely with his people. And Ultimately, those of you that are, that, are, that are Bible nerds know that when we get to Revelation, that's the end of the story, that, that there's no more crying, there's no more tears. Why? Because God is with his people, and God uh, is his people's God, and, and his people are, are God's people, and they're all together. And that's the end of the story, but, but it starts way before that. It starts last week when we talked about from the very beginning in Genesis, where, where there's this beautiful creation, but then there's this fall. And even in the midst of that fall, there's a promise that that yes, evil has come and evil has won in an episode, right, in a small section, but there will be one coming that's going to strike the head of this evil. And yeah, that evil is gonna strike back at, at the, the Messiah, at this one who's gonna come. But, but the thing is, he's going to win, and, and that promise is given. And, and, and we describe that as the promise of the Messiah, that when we, from the very beginning of the story, we had this idea that there is a promise of a Messiah for a weary world. But as we continue to move forward and, and that world continues to descend into weariness, um, we, we also want to think about what is it that he's coming to do. And so in the second week, we're going to think about, about the, the redemptive, uh, the redeeming purpose of the Messiah, right? What, what is this, the purpose of this Messiah that we're talking about, that we're, we're getting at, right? The redeeming purpose of the Messiah. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to break this idea down uh, from Exodus 3, but we're going to do it in two parts, right? First, we're going to think about the fact that God has a reason. God has a reason for his actions. He has a reason for saving. The Messiah has a reason and motivation for doing what he does. And then from that reason, we're going to see his response to that reason. We're going to see his response to what's happening in this weary world. We're going to see that in Exodus, okay? So let's go ahead and jump first into God's reason. We're going to spend some time there, and then from there we'll, we'll work our way into the rest of uh, this text and, and the next point. But uh, before we jump into that, we have to kind of play catch-up. So last week we left off at the end of of Genesis 3, and today we're picking up at the beginning of Exodus 3. That means there have been exactly 50 chapters uh, between where we last left off and where we're picking up today. That's a lot of Bible. Now, I'm going to spare us reading that amount of Bible today, all right? I'm going to spare you, but as most weeks, I do have a nerdy chart. All right, so nerdy charts. By the way, today, if you like nerdy stuff, this is your day. 
All right, I'm just letting you know right now, if you're missing today and you like nerdy stuff, you missed your day. All right, so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to catch up on a timeline, then we're going to jump into some other stuff. So from a Genesis to Exodus timeline, right, what we have at the beginning, one through three, is we have this fall. And that's what we covered last week. That there's this beautiful creation, and then sin enters the picture, and then there's a fall, right? And, and that fall creates this, this disconnection, what we talked about last week, disconnection from God, from each other, from ourselves, from creation, but then from chapter 4 on through 11, what we, what we see the Bible authors doing is we see this, this kind of dissension happening. There's a dissent morally in the world. Everything that was wrong before just keeps happening. It just keeps getting worse. It just keeps getting worse, and it just keeps getting worse. And, and then people are like, like, there's a lot of, like, sexual sin going on. There's all kinds of wild stuff. And this is where you have uh, Noah, right? This is where you have stories like that. And so there's just this moral dissent happening over and over until we arrive at chapter 12. And in chapter 12, a very important turn happens in the story. A man named Abraham is introduced. And the rest of Genesis, chapters 12 through 50, is going to focus on how now God is choosing Abraham and his family to work through them, to display himself through them, and to really show the world his beauty and to bless the world through them. Right, he's going to reinstitute the idea of his people on earth. He's going to reinstitute his, this idea of God dwelling with the people in order to show the world his beauty. And he's going to do it through this family. And so Abraham is given visions. He's told, you're going to be a blessing. You're going to have descendants that outnumber the stars. And Abraham's an old man, and he's like, I don't know. But then he does have a son, and that son's name is Isaac. And then Isaac has two more children. And then his two children, one of them is chosen to continue this story story, and that one's name is Jacob, and, and Jacob has how many kids? <laughs> okay, right. How many sons? Twelve. All right, there we go, there we go, there we go. Uh, Mark be getting me up here. I don't want to know. Mark be out here getting your boy, all right? So uh, he has 12 sons, all right, and those 12 sons are later described as the 12, what? what? The 12 tribes of Israel, uh, and while Jacob, uh, one of the youngest sons and kind of the favorite child, is sold into slavery uh, and he's sent off far away, the other 11 start working with their family in the midst of a giant famine. So they don't have food to eat and they, they need, they're, they're in need and they, they arrive uh, kind of in Egypt with this sense of like, hey, we, we heard Egypt has food and and that's the only place we have to go. All the while, the same brother that they sold into slavery has been doing work. All right, the Lord's been working through him, and he himself has been doing some work in Egypt. And now, when they arrive, they see this great ruler in Egypt, and he's like, he's like, it seems like in the story, this ruler's like messing with them a little bit, and he's doing these weird things that kind of like prod at their family history, and, and all of a sudden, it's revealed in the story that that ruler, uh, like a second-in-command in all of Egypt, is how the Bible describes it, is actually their fallen brother Jacob. And so uh, in the midst of the famine, God has worked in this incredible story to continue this people that he's working through to bless the world and save them through this younger brother. Uh, and they are now in Egypt where they spend multiple years, several years blessed and with food and in the midst of an incredible just provision from God that is really overseen by this younger brother, Jacob. That's the whole of Genesis, right? Joseph, Joseph, that's, that was my bad. I wrote it down this morning, too, and I was like, uh, I was like oh, you know what? Uh, Jacob, right? And I went, yeah, yeah, that would be fine. Joseph, scratch this and put Joseph in there, all right? Uh, so from now here, we are in Egypt, and Egypt uh, is a good spot, right? Joseph uh, passes away, and for a while, things are really good. 
And then and you open up Exodus in like I think the fourth verse. We're not going to have it up here. Uh, it says that, the, that, that a new king rises, and that new king is, is less positive toward the Israelites. He's not really good with them. And, and all of a sudden, they, they start to fear this idea of a potential Israelite uh, uprising, and they start to put them into slavery. And now years go by, and years go by, and Exodus 1, and, and, and we arrive in Exodus 1 at, at this point of the Israelites just being slaves now. They've gone from this incredible story that has spanned generations, and now they're just slaves. That's where we pick up. And in Exodus chapter 3, through a pretty wild turn of events in a man's life named Moses, uh, who is now, uh, who was Hebrew but was raised as an Egyptian and uh, has now been exiled from Egypt because uh, he actually murdered a Egyptian, uh, because of how that Egyptian was treating the Hebrew people, uh, he's in the middle of the desert shepherding his father-in-law's sheep, uh, and they are going to pick up the story there. All right, so let's go. Nerdy chart done. Let's pick up in, uh, in verse 7, all right? Verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7. Um, so he, he goes out, he sees this burning bush, and, and the bush starts talking to him. Pretty gnarly, all right? If you were in his position, you'd be pretty freaked out. Uh, but the bush says something incredible. It says, then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings. And so all this has gone on. Moses is out shepherding. He's in the wilderness. He sees this bush. It's on fire. The bush starts talking to him. Wild things are happening. And and he figures out that it's God, and God says this incredible, this incredible line. He says, man, I've heard the cries of my people. And then at the end there, uh, he says something powerful. He says, I know about their sufferings. And this starts to unveil to us what I would describe as, as the reason, right? What is God's reason? I think this word unveils a lot of, of the reason. It's highlighted uh, because it's unique. In an English translation, it's just I know, right? But in, in the original language, it has these weird overtones of intimacy connected to it, right? It, it's, I might butcher this, so the Hebrew people, looking at Sean, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but, but I believe it's pronounced like yada, and, and it has this sense of, of almost like experiential connection, right? It, it, it's so closely intimate with the person it's referring to that it's more than just I know. Uh, in, in fact, I'm just going to read the way another interpreter in a commentary translated this, and I really, really love this. Uh, it's that, the one right after that. Uh, he says, and Yahweh spoke, surely I have seen the shameful treatment of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry of distress before their taskmasters. Indeed, I feel their pain, is the way he translates it. I feel their pain. It's this intimacy that, that creates this sense of connection, this sense of oneness, this sense of like, man, I so deeply know you. I so deeply am connected to you. I don't just know your pain. I can, I can almost feel your pain. Is this just saying like God is mad compassionate? Yeah, I mean, I do think God's compassionate. Uh, is this saying that he is just like really emotionally connected with other people? Just like some of y'all are like, oh no, I can like feel people's pain too. Like, yeah, he is deeply emotional and, and, and knows how to connect with people. 
But I think at the root of this, this is meant to communicate a very special and, and beautiful idea, which is the depths of God's love for his people. That, that he would unite himself to people, that he would connect and commit himself to people. And out of that commitment, out of that connection, out of, of, of that, that, that bringing himself and uniting himself to people, he would almost just feel his people's pain, right? This is kind of the idea coming off of this text, that, that God is so intimately involved and in love and connected to his people that he's heard their cries. Indeed, he, he almost just feels their, their pain. And, and this is so important, y'all. This is extremely important. Because the roots of this idea are actually connected back to what, we talked last, to what we talked about last week. I think a lot of us would look at this and say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like, God loves me. Uh, God loves other people. But the depth of that love is something that is a little bit hard for us to grasp, right? Because the depths of God's love don't, don't start when we're born. They start when everything's created. God's love isn't one that starts when we do something good and he goes, man, that's really nice. Or even starts when we're born and, and you've heard your parents say, yeah, like my, my child was born and I looked at them and I was filled with love. That, that's how we like to think of God's love because that's how we perceive love in our own experience. But the story of God's love, the story of the love in this story is so much more than that because it's not a father looking at his son. It's the creator looking at his creation. And then it's, we're forced to ask a question, where'd that come from? Why does he love? Does he love me simply because he made me? In part, but it has more to do with who God is. When we go back in, in the beginning, right, and, and we see that God created something, there's, there's an idea that's really important to understanding how God created everything. And it's the idea called the Trinity. Everybody say the Trinity. Everybody's like, oh, this is getting weird. I promise, we're gonna get real dirty for a second and then we're gonna bring it back really good. Okay, I promise, I promise, I promise. Right, and, and when we think about the Trinity, we think about God as triune, this idea that, that the, the one God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that, that he exists in, in these persons and they're all equal in glory, equal in dignity, equal in everything, and they share the same nature, and in that they are all the one God, but that one God exists in these three persons. If you're having trouble following that, Basically, join the club. But what I'm getting at is that the scriptures teach us that this is, is the existence of God. And this has been the existence of God forever, that there's not been a moment. This has not been the case. And so when we think about God's reason for creating, this idea is really important, y'all. Why is it important? Because what's on the screen right now tends to be how a lot of us think about creation. When you think about your relationship with God, you think that this God... And maybe you have the language of saying he's the triune God and he's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You think he created us. And in his creating us, he must have created us for a purpose, for a reason. And then we go and we try to figure out that reason. And we say, well, I have a calling. I have something I'm supposed to be doing. And if I can do that thing, then I will have been giving something back to this God that has created me. And he evidently must have created me for some type of purpose or for some type of reason. And so our relationship with God in our mind, maybe you know the right answers, but in our hearts is this sort of reciprocated relationship. This one where God makes me and he makes me for a reason 
and I have to live up to that reason. And if I don't live up to that reason, I've disappointed him. But if I do live up to that reason, then I've ascended to the place where I'm giving back to God what I'm supposed to give back to God, and, 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 and I'm doing well. And then I feel good about myself, and I feel good about my faith, and I feel good about how I'm living, and, and I think to myself, yes, I'm, I'm doing good. But here's the thing. I lovingly want to tell you, don't switch the slide yet. This is completely wrong. This is completely wrong. Because this, I'm going to cover up this slide. This part of the picture makes this idea completely wrong. To understand that God exists in this way is to understand that God has perfectly self-sustained himself forever, meaning he's never been in need of anything. He's never had need for me or had need for you. He's never had need to create. He's never, he's never made something thinking, if only this can actually make my life better. I've seen people quite literally say, if I could just have children, my life would be the same. If I could just have a house, my life would be the same. The, my life would, would be completely different. I mean, like the whole story of the notebook is homeboy building a house so that he can get the girl that will make his life the same. Some of y'all don't know about Nicholas Sparks, but you should, all right? So, right, the fact that God exists in this way means that he's not creating for anything. He's creating out of an abundance of love. Now let's go to the next slide. This is more so what it should look like. That God creates because he loves, and that's it. God creates because he loves. Out of the abundance of what God has going for himself, this incredible relationship of service and of love that three, these three people give to one another, how they love one another, how they care for one another. When we get into the Gospels, we see this incredible space where he's, Jesus is saying stuff like, God has given, the Father has given me his glory. And then he's saying stuff like, no, but, but now I just want to exalt the Father. And, and there is this incredible relationship where everyone is sacrificing and caring for one another. And we believe that that relationship has been like that forever. Since before eternity, since before anything was created, these these three persons have been loving and caring and building one another up to the point that out of an abundance of love, out of an abundance of care, they start creating to say, yes, creation, gotta, they got to experience what we have going on. And so out of an abundance of love, creation comes out of God. And creation is meant to experience God's love, to know God's love, and to just reciprocate and enjoy God's love. And that's the story of creation. What does that mean for us? Friend, it means that some of us in this room, right, we've walked around and we've legitimately thought to ourselves, does God love me? Am I lovable? Do others love me? What do I need to do to be loved? Friend, I want to, to lovingly encourage you and remind you that your very existence is evidence of God's love for you because he created out of love. Your very existence cries out that the God of the universe looks at you and loves you because he didn't create out of a need for you to say, can you do something for me? And if you do that thing, then I'll love you. Your very existence, the fact that you breathe, the fact that you, you connect and hold on to yourself, the fact that you have lungs, the fact that you have eyes, the fact that you exist at all is a testimony that the triune God who's existed from all time and has never needed a single thing looks at you and said, man, I love you so much that I just want, to, I want you to exist. He creates out of an abundance of love. Friend, you're loved. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter where you've gone. Doesn't matter how bad you failed. Doesn't matter how distant you feel. You are loved. 
So many of us think that, that in our mind, the things that tell us whether we're close to God are, are the actual reasons or the actual reality of how close we are to God. We think, well, if I feel distant from God, then God probably feels distant from me. And so we kind of function like, like a weird pendulum that kind of goes this way and that way with two balls, right? Like the closer I am, the closer God must be. And the farther I feel, then the farther God must be. But in that case, friend, I want, I want to lovingly tell you, you don't worship God in that moment. You just worship your own mind. You worship the thing inside of you that tells you, I feel far from God, so God must feel far from me. And when I feel close to God, God must feel close to me. And in that situation, you don't connect with the living God. You connect with the God that's made in your own image, that's made in your own definition of how you would respond to what's been done, how you would respond to failures, and how you would respond to struggles. That's not the God we worship. The God we worship sees the stained and, 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 and submerged into evil and disconnected from him and the world and each other and says, I'm going to go on an all-out attack in order to restore my relationship with those people. Right? The, the love that he feels can't be changed for you because it never came from you. It, it never came from you. You never earned it. You never manufactured it. It came from him. Before you existed, before you were thought of your parents or your grandparents or your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, God had saw in the idea of who you are and said, I love that person. I want that person. I would go all out in order to have that one person and to make them mine and to make me theirs. Friend, you're so loved. It's absolutely incredible. Right, I... I have another slide, but I'm running behind on time and I'm not going to use it. And so, uh, you know what? No, let's use it. So let's think of it like this, right? Some of us see God's love as the way this was before, right? Where it kind of has these inverse arrows. God's love actually looks more like this, right? The, the V one, uh, Anisha, right? That the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, God, he loves us. He loves you. This is you, right? And this is your start, Right, let's say this is the span of your life. Before your life started, God's love came down to you. It already was there. You had nothing to do with it. You did not create it. You did not earn it. As you breathed your first breath, you were overwhelmingly loved. And when you breathe your last, you will be overwhelmingly loved. And when you fail, you will be overwhelmingly loved. And when you succeed, you will be overwhelmingly loved. This is the story of God's love. And out of that comes our love. Not in reverse, not like, I think I can find something. You're not falling in love with God, like, ah, I'm trying to figure out if it's. There is, there is an overwhelmingly beautiful affection coming from God that, that is just your, your creation is evidence of it. And from that, as we learn that love, as we learn that affection, we respond in love. This is what the story actually looks like. And this arrow never stops. It never ceases. This one, let's be real, this one, this one, this one's got a journey ahead of it. But but this one, this one never stops. It never changes. Right? This is what it means to be loved by God, friend. You were created in love, you were formed in love. This is why so many verses talk about the fact before you were even, before you were even a thought, right? God loved you. Why? Because he creates out of an abundance of his own love. That's God's motivation. That's his reason. Why would God hear and feel and commit himself and be with the people uh, in the midst of their slavery, in the midst of their, of their difficulty, in the midst of their tiredness? It's not hard. He loves you. The only thing that makes that hard is our perception of God's love, not God's actual love. He loves you. When you're struggling, he loves you. 
When you're succeeding, he loves you. When you failed, he loves you, right? That's the story that we're in. This might be the meta-narrative almost at, at its most bare bones function. This is the story that we're met by a God who loves us immensely, will never stop loving us, and created, a fa- created us out of an abundance of love. That's what we're living in right now. That's what you're living in right now. And if you have lies that are telling you, and I know I'm beating a dead horse, that horse is worthy to be beaten over and over again, so I'm gonna keep saying it. If you right now, even as you sit there, think to yourself, but I've done this and I've done that, then again, you're not thinking about the way God actually loves you, you're thinking about the way you love you. And friend, that's that's not God's love. God's love is this overwhelming, originating OG love that you do not get a chance to touch, You do not get the opportunity to phase. It is not in your control. It was always coming from him. That's what it means to be loved by God. That right there. And that's it. That's God's reason. That's his reason. So now, what is his response? So if that's God's reason, what is God's response? Well, we pick up in the text And we arrive at the end of verse 7, right? The end of verse 7, and and I know about their suffering, or I I can feel their suffering. And in verse 8, he continues, And I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing uh, with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, uh, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Shout out to Lex for getting that right. Um, right, that's his response. I can feel their pain. I know their pain. Why? Because I created them. I committed myself to them. I love them. So I'm going to rescue them. That's the, that's the response. Because you're in pain, I'm going to rescue you. Your pain equals my rescue. Right? This is, this is, that's God's response. Out of a depth of love, out of, out of the, a depth of love, out of overwhelming care, right, the, the cries of his people elicit what? A response of saying, I'll come rescue you. Uh, the way I've seen other, other translations put it is, is and I, I know they're suffering, or, or as the other translation put it, I feel they're, they're, they're suffering, so I'm going to come down. What is his response? He comes down. Can you put on the the one before this, Uh, the first part of verse 8? So he comes down. Uh, That's the point. He comes to rescue. He comes to care. He comes to redeem. That's the incredible thing. God, out of an abundance of care, out of an abundance of love, sees the depths of of the suffering of a weary world and decides, I'm coming to rescue. I'm coming to save. I'm coming to redeem. And here's the beautiful thing. Later on in this verse, we have a couple of really fun, later on in this chapter, actually, we have a couple of really fun moments, right? Uh, I may not have put them in there, but I may have. Because uh, from here, something really interesting happens. Uh, starting in verse 12, uh, nope, starting in verse 11, uh, Moses, after receiving such an incredible statement from God, right? I can hear you. I love you. I've loved you since the moment I made you. I've loved you since before I made you. My heart is filled with love. And because of that, I've come down to rescue you. In the midst of hearing such an incredible statement, Moses has a few questions. Uh, It's pretty interesting stuff here. Uh, And it just 
the reason I'm bringing this up is because this really connects and, and shows us exactly how God's reason interacts with God's response. Starting in verse 11, uh, the scriptures say, but Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh uh, and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He, this is out of the reality that God says, hey, I've chosen you, Moses. I'm going to work through you. I'm going to go get these people through you, so go get it. And then Moses is like, I don't know, dude. I'm not, I'm not the best. Uh, and then in verse 12, God answers, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign that you, to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then, verse 13, Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me. All right, it's pretty incredible. This is um, the beginning of what's described as the divine name, which is this idea of, of God's name, this I am who I am statement. But, but it tells us actually a lot about God's reason as well. In fact, I, I actually want to reference a book, and, and this is a little bit confusing. And I, get, I said we're going to get nerdy today, but the nerdiness is for a reason, I promise. It's this book called Who is God by a man named Richard Bauckham. If you don't know who Richard Bauckham is, you're sleeping. All right, lovingly, you're sleeping, all right, because the man is a genius, all right? Uh, he's your favorite theologian's theologian and your favorite pastor's theologian. He's whoever, whoever you like the preacher of, whoever you like the preaching from, uh, if they're rock solid, Richard Bauckham has influenced their thoughts by one way or the other. And in this book discussing this specific verse, he has this incredible section that he goes through in order to talk about this. He says, uh, all around them, that's the Israelites, in Egypt live people who invoke the Egyptian gods, Ra, Osiris, Isis, Horus, Set, and others. To call on one of these gods for favor, one had to uh, distinguish one from another by their names. Gods were no use unless one could call them, call on them by name. There may have been the sense that to know a god's name was to have uh, some power to make the god respond. So if the God who sent Moses was really going to help the Israelites, they needed a name with which to call him. This is important. This is important. Why? Because in the midst of receiving such an incredible promise from God, Moses has insecurity. He doesn't know for sure that God's going to do what God says he's going to do. And in case God doesn't do what he says he's going to do, Moses wants to know the name of God so that in the event something goes awry, in the event something goes unplanned, Moses can look up and say, hey, I'm going to call on the God in certain name so that I can ask you and have leverage over you to say, come rescue us. Come rescue us the way we think we need to be rescued. Here's the thing. The question in this interpretation, the way we're reading the Bible, the way Bauckham's reading the Bible, it is filled with a sense of insecurity. It's filled with doubt that God's reason is actually his reason. It's filled with the insecurity, does God really love me? Will God truly save me? Does God truly care for me? I would say that, que that Moses' question bears in mind our reality and interaction with God more than we think it does. Because all of us can see all the stuff I've been saying for the past like 20 minutes and be like, oh yeah, I know. And trust me, I've been looking at your faces. Some of you are. But this is what act life actually looks like. When Moses goes, but, but what's your name? Because I, I know you love me and all, but... but but I don't fully trust you. 
I don't, I don't fully trust that you'll do what you say you're going to do or that you'll save or that you love me or that your love will motivate you to intervene for me or to come alongside of me or to commit yourself to me. I don't really believe that. So, so in case things don't go to plan, what's your name? Because if I need to call on you, I want to make sure I have that power at my disposal. Bakum continues in uh, another section of the book, what exactly is meant uh, has been much debated, uh, meaning the name I am what I am, uh, what God responds with, uh, because the Hebrew verbs can have either present or future meaning. The translation could be either I am what I am, who I am, or I will be who I will be. So what God says to Moses amounts to I will be whoever I choose to be, or I am free to be who I choose to be. If the reason uh, Israelites, the Israelites want to know their God's name is so they can call him to their aid like some genie in a lamp, then he will not be named. But we should notice that God has, in fact, in this narrative, already told Moses something about what he will be. In 12, I will be with you. God, in his free self-determination, can and does commit himself. He gives promises that he will keep. The point is that God commits himself. Friend, this whole reality works together. The very reason God creates is because he has no need. And he, he pours out his love to create people that he will infinitely love forever without question. And the reason God saves is because he loves us. You cannot change whether God loves you. You cannot take away from God's love. Likewise, he commits himself to you in order to save and redeem because he loves you. And because he's created you without any need and without any, any, any requirement of you to do something back in order for him to love you, his salvation comes from his pure looking at you and saying, I love you enough to save you. That's what happens here. That's what God is doing. That's what God does in Jesus. There's not something where it's like, man, I should really kind of save these people because... Uh, like, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's iffy if I don't. God looks at those he loves and says, I hear your cries. I hear a weary world, and I'm going to save you. That's the response. The response is a free, self-determining God who has no one to look at him and say, hey, I got to hold you accountable. He's able to say, hey, I do what I want. I do what I want, when I want, how I want. And I decided I'm finna love you. Right, if you want some Nicholas Sparks, that's your Nicholas Sparks, all right? I'm telling you, it's like the ultimate love story. It, it's just this, this infinite loop of people being like, but I failed, and him being like, it didn't matter if you failed or succeeded. I was gonna love you anyway. I was gonna rescue you anyway. You could run, and as far as you run is as far as I'll go. As high as you jump is as high as you jump. To the depths that you plumb is to the depths that I'll plumb. That's the story. That's God's response. Where you go, I'm gonna go. How you fail, I'm going to go rescue you. Where you succeed, I'm going to celebrate you. Why? Because I've committed myself, and you can't change that. I decided to commit myself to you. You're mine, and I'm yours, and there's nothing you can ever do about it. That's the story. That's the meta-narrative, right? And that's what he does. The rest of Exodus is about God going all out to rescue his people. He just does some wild things. Uh, and he rescues them. And then he takes them into the wilderness to guide them to this land. And he continues to provide for them. He, he like, sends down crazy bread from heaven, right? And they're, like, they're, they're, they're picking up this what amounts to some flour from the ground and making bread out of it every day. And, and then in one moment that stands out in Exodus 17, there is this incredible moment where, where everyone's like, we don't got no water, Moses. 
And Moses is like, I. And then they're like, but we had water in, we had water in Egypt. It's like, bro, all the stuff you've seen, you're still talking about Egypt? Like, this is crazy. And then we look at our lives and we're like, oh. But in this moment, in Exodus 17, in response to the cries for water, this happens. The Lord answered Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. Uh, next verse, I am going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. In a moment where there's no water and God has been guiding his people, he's, he's heard their cries, he's come down, he's loved them, he's provided for them, and now they need drinking water and they're complaining about it. That's what's crazy. It's not like they're like, hey Moses, can you please just like put in a solid and ask God if he can get us some water? They're like, we had water in Egypt. And God's response to the depths of, of their ignorance and their, their ingratitude is to say, go, go to the rock at Horeb and I'm gonna stand on that rock and I want you to strike that rock with your staff. And when you strike that rock, water will come out so the people can drink. Theologians have in several instances described the fact that God himself stood on that rock. And when Moses struck that rock, he didn't just strike a rock. He uh, symbolically, or maybe even spiritually, struck God himself. And when God himself was struck, water came out and provided life uh, for the people of Israel. Does that sound wildly familiar to you? Good, because the New Testament authors picked this up. All right, so in 1 Corinthians, right, we have this incredible moment where we see now, starting in 10 verse 1, now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. This is the cloud that was with the people uh, in the wilderness. All passed through the sea. That's how they escaped Egypt. Uh, and all were baptized into Moses, the character we're just talking about, in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. This is like the manna that we just described. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. So New Testament authors see all this happening. They see a weary world and a people in oppression. They see a hurting world and they see God out of an abundance of love looking and saying, I hear you, I feel your pain. And my response is to come down in order to save you. And I'll be with you and I'll guide. And after I deliver you, you're gonna have constant moments where you go, man, but what about back there? And when you do that, I'm gonna shut your mouth by giving you more. And when you need food, I'm gonna give you food. And when you need water, I will literally allow myself to be struck in order for you to have spiritual sustenance and water in the midst of the wilderness until I deliver you into a land that I've given to you so that you can be with me and I'll be with you and we'll create a world and it's gonna be beautiful. And they say, you know, that's a lot like what's happening here in the story of Jesus. You know, that, that sounds really similar to this person of Jesus, that, 
that when we were in a weary world and we were suffering and, and he heard our cries, the depth of his love for you didn't stop him or, 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 or they didn't discourage him. They didn't, they didn't make him cower back, but he sees you and, and he says, I, I feel your pain. I, I know your pain. I can, I can almost sense it. I'm connected and committed to you. And because of how much pain you're in, I will come down and I will enter into your story. And when I enter into your story, I will go all out in order to redeem you and to rescue you and to bring you out of the suffering that you're in. And when I bring you out of the suffering that you're in, we're going to go on a journey. And that journey is going to be to a place where I'm going to provide everything. But along the way, you're going to have moments where you're like, but what about this? But what about that? And I'm going to give you everything that you need. Every time you're thirsty, I'll provide. Every time you're hungry, I'll provide. Until at the end of the story, I will ultimately succeed and be victorious, and you will have exactly what I told you you're going to have. And this is a story that the, the, that the early church looked at and said, that's what's happening with us, right? That's what happening, that's what's happening with us. Like, like the very redemption that God has sown and God has displayed uh, in the Exodus is the very kind of redemption that's going on in our life. It must not just be that God was looking to redeem. It must be that Jesus was this God that came down in order to redeem. That Jesus must have been this God that hears the cries of his people. And he must have been this God that provides. In fact, he was the very God that was struck on the rock in order to provide water. He's the very God that sees and commits himself. The creator God that is created out of love and care. He is the very God that has promised that he will come down. Promised that he's going to commit himself. Whose love we cannot deter. Whose care we cannot deter. Whose salvation we cannot change. He's that God. Amen. Hallelujah, for real. They pick it up and say, you see that story of redemption, the purpose of this Messiah, that was Jesus' work. When we didn't know it, when we were hurting and crying, when we were in a weary position of, of discouragement and despair, God was at work. And he heard our cries because he was filled with love for us. And he cared and he saw and he came down. That's the story that we're in. That's the meta-narrative. Friend, Christmas isn't about just the coming of Jesus. It's about a story of God's creation, weary and hurting and desperate. And God says, I'm with you. I've come to rescue you. I know you. I'm here. That's the story. This is what you live in right now. And so often we struggle with this story, not because of the response, right? Now, a lot of us hear the story of the gospel and we're like, yeah, that's good. But because we don't remember the reason. We don't remember the fact that God did all this because he loves you. And Jesus did this because he loves you, right? The purpose of the redeemer, the purpose of the Messiah to redeem and to restore, man, it comes from an overwhelming overflow of God's deep love for you. Friend, the Bible is incredible in terms of how it teases out this story to make sure you know, man, he loves you. He loves you. He's doing all this because he loves you. He's doing all this because he hears you. You're the object of his affection, and his affection is continuing to be poured out. You cannot stop it. You cannot change it. And his salvation can't be taken away because it was never something that you earned. He's just constantly pouring out his love, seeking to be with you, seeking to be among you, seeking to bless you, seeking to, to, to love you. Right? That's all that's going on. We come here to celebrate that truth. This is what's actually happening right now, and this is what we celebrate during Christmas, and I love it. I hope you do too. Um, 
I gotta close up, but this story reminds me uh, of a movie that I really love and that I showed to some of you uh, a while back and some of you loved it and did not love it. Uh, it's a movie called Silence. Uh, and it is, a, it is a really rough film. It's a hard film to watch. If you're not prepared emotionally, I would encourage you not to watch it. Uh, it is a story about two priests that enter into a persecuted Japan and they observe some atrocities in search of a mentor uh, that they had had who'd went to Japan. And uh, there are now rumors that he has apostatized and left the faith and is living as a Japanese citizen uh, in Nagasaki. And in the film, it follows a young priest named uh, Rodriguez. And the film is really narrated and pushed along through Rodriguez's inner thoughts, his thoughts of prayer, his thoughts of just contemplation. And as he goes through the movie, he reaches Japan at first and he's filled with confidence. Uh, he talks about how he sees a, a young man, uh, a young man uh, named Kochichira, uh, Kochichira. I think that's how you say his name, Kochichiro. Uh, Kochichiro restored in the faith, and he says, "Man, it made me feel like I had purpose, like I could be of help to these people." He's filled with faith. He keeps on talking about how he sees uh, the God, the, he sees Jesus' face, and it fills him with courage. Uh, and he keeps having these weird flashes to the face of Jesus. And as he continues to experience suffering alongside of the Japanese, he begins to become filled with doubt. And the prayers start to take a wild turn. Uh, he starts to pray things like, I'm filled with doubt. I'm tempted to despair. I pray to you, but all I get back is silence. Or am I praying to nothing? Nothing, because you're not there is one of his most powerful prayers in the film. It takes place about middle of the way through. And near the end, uh, he does find out that the mentor, no, spoiler alert, uh, the mentor has apostatized and that he is living as a Japanese citizen in Nagasaki. In fact, he's now a Buddhist scholar and that scholarship is leading him to write a book against the doctrines of Christianity. Shortly after that, he's taken to a place where he's observing his former congregants that he was serving in the villages of Japan, tortured and Young Padre Rodriguez uh, renounces his faith there in order to stop the persecution because the Japanese government has learned that stopping uh, killing the priests is no use, but to get the priests to renounce their faith by having to watch the villagers be tortured, that's the way to stop this Christianity thing. It's a wild movie, I'm telling you. And then the rest of the movie goes on this incredible, it's only a short short section, but it shows you this incredible story of Padre Rodriguez, who now spends the next several decades working for the Japanese government in order to fight off the inc incoming, you know, Christian symbols and missionaries. And he's like his mentor living as a Japanese citizen. Uh, he takes on a Japanese name and takes a Japanese wife until uh, one day we're invited into a scene late into the movie, spoiler alert, where he has now become friends with this man, Kikichiro, that he had served before. A man that had actually uh, turned him in and had turned him over to the Japanese government who led him into torture. But Kikichiro has become a friend and he's really the last remnant of the group that he served in his former life. And we're invited at the end of the movie after having not heard the internal thoughts of Rodriguez for several minutes now, uh, into a humble moment between him and this man where he looks at Kikichiro and simply says, thank you, thank you for being here with me. You're really the only thing I have left of this past life. And Kikichiro's face turns into a face of despair and he says, 
I still suffer from what I did to you and what I did to my family and what I did to the Lord in denying him and in turning away from him. Ichichiro had denied his faith several times up until this point. Um, and then Kichichiro looks at Padre Rodriguez and he utters some words that had not been said in decades. And he says, P Padre, uh, the word for priest used in the movie. And Padre Rodriguez looks up in, in shock and says, no, 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 not anymore. I'm a fallen priest. And Kichichiro looks back and says, but you're the only priest. Please hear my confession. And he begins to tear up. And a man that had sold him out and had denied his faith comes back one final time to ask to be forgiven. And Father Rodriguez sits up, filled with compassion, and puts his hand on Kichichiro's head. And he closes his eyes. And for the first time in what feels like decades at this point, you hear his internal voice say, Lord, I fought against your silence. And then finally, at the end of the movie, you hear a voice come back to say, I suffered beside you. I was never silent. And you see Rodriguez become overwhelmed. And then he says some powerful words. And he says, even if God had always been silent, my whole life, up until this day, everything I do and everything I've done speaks of him. It was in the silence that I heard your voice. And then he receives Kichichiro's confession. The end of the movie uh, shows a lifeless uh, Rodriguez, old and frail, in Japanese clothing, being burned in a barrel, a traditional Buddhist burial. And as it zooms into his body, he's holding a small wooden cross that one of the, the congregants gave him all those years ago during the persecution that he experienced. Uh, and it poses some really fun questions at the end uh, that I'll leave you to working through as you watch the movie. Uh, oh, I'm way behind now. Uh, that, that's what we're doing here, right? That's what we're doing here. Even if he was silent and you thought it was all awry, you thought that he had left, you thought that he had given up, the whole time he's with us. Why? Because his love demands it of himself. He's suffering with you, he's succeeding with you, he's journeying with you, he's crying with you, he's, he's, he's with you. I feel their pain, why? Because I love them, they're mine, and I've come down to save them. Friends, this Christmas time, this is what we're doing. This is, we're, we're celebrating and exalting Jesus for what he's done, this beautiful story of redemption and salvation, and I want you to join us, with, I want you to worship him today, right? the beautiful truth of what he's done and who he is and what he's continuing to do in our lives, how he's with us, the fact that he loves us, that he created us in love, that his response to our suffering is not to, to leave us, but to come down and to join us so that as he joins us in our suffering, we may join him in life and in victory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the story of your gospel, the story of your rescue and your love that, that, that never stops in pursuing us, that out of the depths of your love, you have heard our cry and you've pursued us. And because of your pursuit, we stand here today uh, able to sing of the beautiful treasures of your love um, seen in the work and life of Jesus. Thank you, Father, 
thank you for everything that you've done our whole lives up until this moment and will continue to do in our lives. Help us to follow you, to see you, to love you well as we continue to learn the depths and the incredible truth of your love for us. We love you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.